You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that thinks getting bludgeoned upside the head with a copy of Infinite Jest is less painful than actually having to read Infinite Jest. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. But before we get started, I just want to make one exciting announcement. So I know for the past couple episodes, I've been like, hey, we're going to have stuff soon that you can buy and put on your body and on things that you own. And we have that now. We have a cat for sale. No, we don't. Cat for sale. (laughs) No, you need to buy things in, in the store so that we don't have to sell the cat. Uh, but yeah, no, we have merch in a, in a merch store, and it's very cool. It's the Brain Trust Brothers uh, Network sh- store on TeePublic. You can get to it by going to tpublic.com slash braintrustbros. Also, if you go on any of our social media, it's the only thing that I'm screaming about on there. But you can get Big Willie Shakespeare financing with RJ, a, a message telling you not to kink shame Dracula, you can get those on mugs and t-shirts and tote bags. You could also get the show's logo, and it's beautiful, and everything in there was made by me and Rhett Hall, who is the head of the Brain Trust Brothers Network and also the host of the Brain Trust Brothers podcast. And then you could get all sorts of cool swag from the other shows there too, like Field of Screams, Banana Splits, and our newest member, Play Comics. So go check that out. Buy things cool things and then you know show everybody that you're cool please help us get some money so rj doesn't sell the fucking cat i could sell the cat but if we raise enough money that we could buy the ingredients so we can cook the cat god damn it chives are expensive (laughs) yeah chives yeah (laughs) i haven't looked at the price of chives so i can't verify that trust me all right expensive today we are going to be talking about a book that was written for a very special reason. The Kama Sutra. <laughs> yeah. Don't you remember when you had to read and do a book report on the Kama Sutra in school? I remember when I found out what my special purpose was. We all have a special purpose. Is it to bone down? Yeah. Nice. I have a feeling someone's ever seen The Jerk. No. Hmm. I just know the opening. It was Steve Martin's special purpose. To bone down? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no. The book was not written... For, for sex reasons. I don't think. You want, you want to try again, or are you going to give up? A special book? No, it's a book that was written for a very special reason. Spite. Today's book was written out of spite. Spite? It's going to be one of those kind of episodes, huh? Spite Spiting. is spite is a powerful motivator. In fact, some, several of the writers that we've covered before here on Oh No Lit Class wrote books out of spite. They did? Yes. You didn't report that. Yes, we have. You just don't remember a damn thing we do here. Ralph Ellison wrote The Invisible Man because he was pissed at the Communist Party for what he saw as a betrayal of the people of color on whose backs they'd risen to prominence. Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible to spite McCarthy and the U.S. government's communist witch hunts. And F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby to get back at a girl who was mean to him once. And I guess maybe Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick to spite the ocean. He was very mad at the ocean, if I recall. And also despite, you know, generations of future readers. And so today's book that was written out of a sheer sense of pure spite is Lord of the Flies by William Golding. The classic novel of little British boys just going absolute buck wild fucking nuts on an island. So you gotta answer something for me. Okay. Where does this fall in the Lord of the Trilogy? After the Two Towers, before Return of the King, and yet somehow at the exact same time as the Similarian. Fuck. Where's the dance fall in all this? (laughs) Well, they're all doing it as they're doing stuff. Whenever, you know, you read any of the characters like Legolas was was doing such and such with with Aragorn, they're doing the the Lord of the Dancing. The movies left it out. Too too difficult, too costly, they said. The Lego movie left it out? The Lego movie? Oh, yeah, Lego ass. That's a Lego's number one character. 
That's not even a good joke. His name's Lego. I was ass. I was with you. I was you know, Lego. Ass. I was willing to go along with it, but that's just too stupid. Lego ass. Mm-hmm. You're a Lego ass. So a lot of people do not like this book, and by a lot of people, I mean pretty much everyone who had to read it in middle and or high school. I freaking hated it when I read it, and I think a lot of the problem is that people don't get it. And they don't get it because they're not taught it the right way. The Simpsons way. No. Yeah. I knew you were going to talk about that because that's like probably the only entry point you had into this because you you didn't read this one either, did you? I did read this. Oh, yeah, you did read yeah. this. Now, did you get it in middle school or high school? That I don't remember. Uh, Somewhere in there. Because I feel like most people read it in high school, but I know I definitely read it in like, I think I want to say like seventh or eighth grade, and I just could not give a Look about it at the time. Yeah, I think it was more middle school, or at least early half of high school. Maybe both. <laughs> yeah. Just gave it yeah, to you. You know what? Again. This might have been one that I was assigned twice. Ugh. Come to think of it. Gross. But yeah, so I'm gonna. I got a whole thing there planned on un- Simpsons related. It's been a while since we mentioned The Simpsons on the show, huh? I don't know. It's true. You wouldn't. But before I can get into my rant about how William Golding wrote this book to get back at another book that was written nearly a century prior. RJ, why don't you tell us about William Golding? Well, so I think the episode starts with Otto taking the kids to Model UN. God damn it. They're on a bus. And don't they like race bananas and oranges? And... <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I have not seen this episode in probably a decade. <laughs> drive off the bridge. I didn't ask for a summary of Lord of the Rings. I asked you to tell me about William Golding. So you just, you fucked up there. Lord of the Rings? <laughs> All right. So J.R.R. Tolkien. God damn it. Tell me about William Golding for the love of God. You said Lord of the Rings. I know I did. All right. Sir William Gerald Golding. Mr. Area Code Pound 44, Mr. Lord of the Flies, Mr. Lord of the Dance, a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. He has a lot of titles. That's a, that's a lot. It's very impressive. He was born the 19th of September, 1911, and died the 19th of June, 1993. Now, Commander Golding wasn't born a commander, but down deep, it was always true. Most people aren't born commanders, I would think. Yeah, but I was thinking, you know... Commander Golding has like a ring to it. It does. Yeah, we had Boss Baby this past year. Yeah. So we have Commander Baby. Commander Baby Golding. Anyway, Commander Golding plopped his way into the world at his grandmother's house at 47 Mount Wise, New Quay, Cornwall, England. I bet you pronounced half of that wrong. Perhaps, but it's one of the few people. We get like an exact address where this guy came out of. <laughs> yeah, you're really into that, huh? Yeah, some say if you visit that address today... You can still smell the greatness wafting in the air. Gross. That's, I mean, that, that's probably the rot, the English rot, but sure. After being birthed into the world, Commander Golding tap-danced his way to Marlborough Wiltshire, England, where he allowed his parents to raise him. You're taking a really weird angle on this one. <laughs> He's Commander. Okay. Now, Dad, Alec Golding, was a science master at Marlborough Grammar School. A science master. Commander Golding attended the school. His dad was Science Master Rover. No word if he called Dad Golding Daddy Science Master, but I would like to think he did. Science Daddy. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> the only proper thing to do. It's true. Oh, Ma- Science Daddy. Are we learning chemistry today? Mom Mildred Kerno Golding was a stay-at-home mom during the day and a campaigner for female suffrage at night. Commander Golding later in life described his mother as Cornish and as a superstitious kelp what how, what how is cornish a description described his mother as cornish my mother was just so terribly cornish now here's what i take away from this meg as someone who's american with absolutely no context yeah i don't think it's right to refer to your mother as cornish you should never refer to someone as tasting of corn it's just not a nice thing to say is this is going <laughs> why he said it he said she was cornish yes as in like being of cornwall <laughs> now the superstitious bit that's okay it's just uh, uh i don't know what i do with this <laughs> there would have been a joke here <laughs> but you didn't bother <laughs> anyway mommy goldie apparently had a fetish about telling cornish fairy tales from her own childhood to little commander. She's just so Cornish. Even her fairy tales. 
I don't know what it is with this family, but they were really into talking about corn and other such Cornish pastimes. You're just doing whatever you could stretch out. What I assume is not, not a particularly vivid life story. Gotta let you know on a secret, Meg. Yeah. There's not a lot to say about this guy. That, you know, I couldn't tell. I was a wee lad. I'll call him CG from now on. He was fascinated with literature. In particular, he fashioned himself an author from a young age. When CG was just 12 years old, he attempted unsuccessfully to write a novel. Anyway, CG admitted later in life that he was constantly frustrated as a child with his literary failings, and so he found an outlet in bullying his peers. He admitted that as a child, he was a brat, and, quote, I enjoyed hurting people. That's healthy, and actually explains a lot. At the age of 19 in 1930, CG broke out of his parents' house and took a long journey that took him to Frasinose College, Oxford. Holy shit, <laughs> let me see. Brassinose College. Brassinose? Brassinose College. God, we're going to look it up and we're going to see that it was, it's just printed. It's not going to be pronounced anything like that. He started his time there as a natural sciences student before jumping ship on that and becoming a student of the hard sciences. English literature. The hardest science there is. Four short years later... Golding graduated with second-class honors in the summer of 1934. Shortly thereafter, he tried publishing. He did get a book of poems published, and much like his earlier writings, they failed. The book went ignored. Now, aside from writing, or more specifically, sucking at writing, with his degree, he followed in his dad's footsteps and became a schoolmaster. He taught English and music at Maidstone Grammar School for a few years before focusing on philosophy in English in 1939. So he was a philosophy daddy? He was a philosophy daddy. During this time in his life, Golding met Anne Brookfield, an analytical chemist, and decided to put a ring on it. The two eventually created, through sheer magic and unicorn tears, two children. That's how babies are made. That's what happens when you're an analytical chemist. Magic. In an attempt to set up shop for the newly formed family, Golding swapped schools teaching now at the Bishop Wordsworth School in Salisbury, Wiltshire. Salisbury? While there, he exclusively taught English, so no longer a philosophy daddy. Just straight up English daddy. While teaching at Bishop, Golding exclusively was teaching adolescent boys. This time in his life would serve as an inspiration for his later writing of Lord of the Flies. Kind of shocking that more middle school teachers don't write books about how fucking awful kids are. Anyway, teaching at the school did not last long as World War Electric Boogaloo broke out and Golding decided to get in on the action and join the Royal Navy in 1940. He would be in the Navy for the next six years of his life. During his service, he grew a fondness for both boat and sea. Golding actually got to take part in- As opposed to one over the other? What? I like the sea, but I'm not fond of boats. I'm just, I'm super into boats. Hate the ocean, though. Love to be on a boat, but the second that thing touches water, fuck this. Yeah, you you enjoyed sitting in the hot on the boat. (laughs) Or you, like, make model boats and you never go out. I don't know. (laughs) It's a dumb sentence. No. You go like the sea because you go swimming in it? You know, inner tubing and hate boats. You go like boats and never go into the ocean. I'm sure he was doing a ton of inner tubing during World War II. You never know. Goldie actually got to take part in some of the biggest moments of the Boogaloo. He was on a ship that helped sink the German battleship Bismarck, which was the largest German battleship used in the war. Oh, shit. Goldine also piloted one of the landing ships at some small military mission known as D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. Never heard of it. I mean, if you're going to go to war, you might as well war big. Now, Goldine said of his military service, quote, I began to see what people were capable of doing. Anyone who moved through those years with an understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. Just like his teaching experiences, it seems clear that Goldine's military service had a big influence on his later writings. A little bit. After his military service ended, he returned home and resumed teaching and writing. By 1954, eight years after returning to civilian life, Golding had written the manuscript that would become Lord of the Flies. The manuscript was largely panned by publishers he sent it off to. In fact, it was rejected 21 times. His daughter, who was of elementary school age at the time, Golding was trying to get Lord of the Flies published recalls the family being very poor at the time and Golding desperately trying to find a publisher 
to take the text to market. And I quote, My earliest memory is not of the book itself, but of a lot of parcels coming back and being sent off again very quickly. He must have been grief-stricken every time it returned. Even paying for the postage was a commitment. That sucks. That's how you had to do with with manuscripts back in the day. You just had to pay to be like, hey, read this. And they'd be like, no, it sucks. Eventually, he did find a publisher. However, even when published, the novel was initially a huge flop. Once it even was published, his publishers tried to hide the fact that they were publishing the book from the publishing house's, uh, their Faber, um, their literary advisor, famous poet, racist, and anti-Semite T.S. Eliot, until someone, like, blabbed to him at a party saying, quote, Faber has published an unpleasant novel about small boys behaving unspeakably on a desert island. To which I assume Eliot replied with, like, uh, have you not read The Wasteland? People behaving unspeakably in desert hellscapes is kind of my jam, bro. And Elliot actually loved the book, unlike, apparently, everybody else. In the year following its 1954 publishing, only 4,662 copies of the novel sold. However, critics reacted positively towards the novel, so, over time, the novel hung around and more copies sold. By 1962, over 65,000 copies had been sold. In 1963, after the novel had found its legs, Golding retired from teaching. One sign that it had caught on is the fact that it became the eighth most challenged book of all time in American schools. Yep, Lord of the Flies. Too real for American kids. Hashtag too real. Author Stephen King says of flies, quote, It was, so far as I can remember, the first book with hands, strong ones, that reached out of the pages and seized me by the throat. It said to me, this is not just entertainment. It's life or death. Dun, dun, dun. Now, there were critics of flies as well. Generally, critics attack Golding for exclusively using adolescent boys in the novel. In response to the critics, Golding said, One girl say to me, and very reasonably, Why isn't it a bunch of girls? Why did you write about a bunch of boys? My reply is, If you, as it were, scale down human beings, scale down society, if you land with a group of little boys... They are more like scaled-out society than a group of little girls will be. Don't ask me why, and this is a terrible thing to say because I'm going to be chased from hell to breakfast by all the women who talk about equality. This has nothing to do with equality at all. I think women are foolish to pretend they are equal to men. They are far superior and always have been. So, Golding knew. You put a bunch of little girls on an island, it just wouldn't go the same way. And we're going to talk about this more later. This is going to come up later. A friend of Golding's recalled a time in which Golding went to a school performance of Flies, and after the performance, Golding went backstage, and I will quote the story here. This is a good story, too. Golding went backstage afterwards and said to the boys, Did you like being little savages? Oh, yes, quite. It was jolly good being a savage. Ah, he said. But you wouldn't like to be savages all the time, would you now? Yes, we would. They looked suddenly <laughs> like the boys in the story do when the adult comes to rescue them at the end. Cowed and indeed awed by what the world might hold in store. You got Golding, son! <laughs> when he was 73, Golding was awarded the 1983 Nobel Prize for Literature. In 1988, he was knighted. Golding died of heart failure on June 19, 1993. When he died, a manuscript titled The Double Tongue was found and published posthumously. Another three unpublished novels, two autobiographical works, and a journal of two million words written over 20 years were all also found, but as of yet have not been published. However, even though the autobiographies remain unpublished, we do have excerpts from them. As such, we know Golding wrestled with his own inner demons and saw himself as a monstrous character, and saw a lot of himself in flies. In Men, Women, and Now, he writes about a girl named Dora, who he dated when he was 18 and she was 16. In the memoir, Golding recalled on one date that the two of them went for a walk and he, quote, felt sure she wanted heavy sex, as this was visibly written on her pert, right, and desirable mouth. Unable to control oh boy. himself, he admits he attempted to have sex with her against her will before stopping after the two, quote, wrestled like enemies. Oh boy, this, um, this is explaining some things. A uh, Golding biographer who reviewed the memoir also reports that Golding, quote, was aware of and repelled by the cruelty in himself and was given to saying that had he been born in Hitler's Germany, he would have been a Nazi. So while we are left with Commander Golding, it turns out 
we weren't very far away from having Hauptmann Golding, Lord of the Kraut. That's a really weird thing to hear a person say about themselves, especially one who, with the publishing of this, you know, book, seemed very determined to to point out man's cruelty and such and just be like, yeah, you know, if I'd been born in Nazi Germany, I probably would have been all about that. All about that Fuhrer. That, I mean, I guess that takes a a marked amount of (laughs) self-awareness. Oh, he seems to think uh, man has evil within themselves. He is man. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, he has a heart of darkness as well. That's heavy. The end. <laughs> I, might been, I might have been a Nazi. The end. The end. Oof. Um. All right. So that gives us a lot of insight into Lord of the Flies. Uh, but there is still a huge element that goes missing in many of the times where it's taught. And teachers, you know, leave that shit out also because, of course, they do. And I guess, you know, whether it gets taught in schools at all. But anyway. In order to properly understand and appreciate Lord of the Flies, you need to know about the Coral Island. Okay. Now, the Coral Island is a book from 1858 that I didn't read until I was in grad school in my Victorian adventure novel class, and that's what I spent my mid-twenties doing. Holy shit. Those were my life choices. I think I just disassociated a little there. So The Coral Island by R.M. Ballantyne was one of the first, like, boys' adventure fiction type of books to actually have boys rather than adult dudes as the main characters. And would serve as an inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson, like, Treasure Island and Rudyard Kipling and, you know, that, that sort of thing. It was also written during peak Victorian times when them Brits were just, like, so high on the idea of how fucking great in English they were and how great it was exploring, read brutally colonizing, all of these exciting lands rife with danger and adventures and savages. Ugh. So the Coral Island centers on three boys, Jack, Ralph, and Peterkin. Those names are going to sound familiar soon. These three teenage English gentlemen are shipwrecked on a majestic tropical island And they build a shelter and live off the land and use their good English breeding to just fucking thrive. And then they fight pirates and convert natives to Christianity. This book has never been out of print since it was published. It it remains just like crazy popular and embedded in British literary consciousness. Just like Mr. Brightside. Yes, exactly like Mr. Brightside. (laughs) They're, They're coming out of their shipwreck and they're doing just fine. So, Golding... I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the lyric from the song. (laughs) Damn it. That's a home corner the rest of the time. Oh, God. I'm Mr. Brightside. Even there's nothing to do with any of this. (laughs) You brought it up. No, you did. I didn't bring it up. Megan, don't be such a hot bus. That's just the album. That's not a lyric. So... Golding read The Coral Island and was like, bullshit! Especially, which, you know, makes sense now, as someone who was teaching young boys all day. And he uh, he took that sentiment and wrote the targeted heat-seeking missile that is Lord of the Flies, tossing in many direct, obvious references and even mentioning the book by name, so that he may as well have been violently shaking you by the shoulder, shouting like, Do you get it? Do you get that the notion that men, nay even innocent boys, would retain any ounce of humanity outside of civilization is garbage? Also, fuck R.M. Ballantyne? He probably didn't actually want to tell R.M. Ballantyne to go fuck himself, but I do, and they're both dead, and I'm not. So, there we are. Long story short, any teacher who tries to make their students read Lord of the Flies without explaining the backstory... That, you know, a hundred years after the Coral Island, William Golding looked at that and said, No fucking way! This is how boys would really behave in that situation. They're doing it wrong. So sayeth I. Alright, let's get to island adventures and boy murder. Are you ready, RJ? It was only a kiss. (laughs) (sighs) Jesus fucking Christ. Let's take her dress off now. (laughs) I just can't look. It's killing me. And taking control. (laughs) The book opens with two boys on a tropical beach who have just escaped from a plane crash. One is described merely as fair-haired, and the other is fat. So Blondie and Fatty, who are both around 12 years old, are like, Well, that surely was a jolly good plane crash, what what, and also, where are all the adults? 
specifically the one with the megaphone who was telling us what to do. And the fat kid asked the blonde kid what his name is, and he says, what what name do you think it might be? Ralph Wiggum. Close enough. Ralph does not ask the fat kid what his name is because he doesn't care. Piggy. Can you not? Oh, look at me go. I'm um, coming out of my case, and I've been doing just fine. You've been doing the opposite of that. Whoa. Well, Ralph doesn't want to know what the fat kid's name is because he didn't give a shit, and he instead strips naked and goes skinny dipping in the ocean because we all process trauma in our own way. The fat kid struggles down to the water, wheezing, because he's got asthma. He's got the asthma, which is asthma, and I swear to God, is like one of the two things that I bothered to remember about this book. That they're always saying things about his asthma. These kids have known each other for like ten seconds. They were on what the book later implies was an evacuation flight because of the war. Uh, quick note here: if you look at the earlier edits of the book, uh. there was nothing left to the imagination. It was nuclear war, and these kids were getting it out of dodge. Um, Publishers made him cut that bit. I see. A little little too much? Yeah. (laughs) Well, either way, they've endured a plane crash, and they even note that a bunch of kids probably died in the plane crash. And, you know, when the fat kid has trouble swimming because of his asthma, Ralph just laughs and says, Sucks to your asthma! English boys, everybody. Doesn't matter how theoretically good your breeding is, all 12-year-old boys are essentially devil gremlins, and no sane person is going to argue with me on that. I was a genius. I'm sure you were a devil gremlin. Now, a smarter child might have, at this point, intuited some things about Ralph, but our little fat kid is probably not that smart, at least not in the social sense, because he tells Ralph that all the kids back home used to call him Piggy, and please, please, please don't tell anyone else. Please! Please! (laughs) And of course- And don't play with my tail. Well, it hurts him when you uncurl his tail. Okay. Then you would snap back. Oh, God. It's mean. <laughs> and, of course, Ralph is like, <laughs> piggy, because you're fat, like a pig is. Because <laughs> he's a shitty 12-year-old boy, and really, piggy should have known better. You may be wondering, do we ever actually learn piggy's name? Spoiler alert, no. The two get tired of being nude and prepubescent together, put their clothes back on, and wander back up the beach. They find a conch shell. And Piggy's like, hey, if you blow that, it'll make a noise, like a megaphone. And Ralph's like, that's dumb, you're dumb. But he remembers how the man with the megaphone got to be in charge of everyone. So he blows the shell anyway, and it makes a shell noise, and starts drawing all kinds of other boys out of the surrounding trees, with Golding feeling it necessary to tell us that many of them are buck-ass naked. They've been on the island for, like, all of five fucking minutes, like, Jesus. Just immediately, nude. Um, there's gonna be a lot of, a lot of little boy nudity going on so ralph just keeps blowing the conch conch <laughs> he's blowing that conch enjoying what uh golding calls the violent pleasure of it sometimes you just want to put something in your mouth and blow don't read too much into it and then a pack of boys wearing what's described as heavy black choir robes stumble onto the beach and i didn't know what to kind of picture there i was thinking of like monk robes or something so i had to look it up and they're like big harry potter type cloaks So it makes sense that in the tropical heat, one of them passes out. It does raise the question, though, of why these kids who are being evacuated out of England are in, like, full choir dress, ready to, like, drop some Ave Maria at a moment's notice. Oh, if the nuclear holocaust is coming, you pray. (laughs) But if you think it's weird that these boys are all wrapped up in these cloaks, while the other ones have already forgotten the concept of clothing entirely, there's a reason for that. The other boys look to the one who's apparently their reader, a little red-headed guy named Jack, like, can we please take these off? And he's just like, no, gotta show that we're separate and special. So we meet a bunch of other boys, including uh, two twins named Sam and Eric, a squirrely little guy named Roger, and Simon, the choir boy who fainted, by the way. Maybe it's Simone. I'm pretty sure it's not. Simone. There are a bunch of other- You ever see that Al Pacino movie? What? Was that Al Pacino? I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Oh my god. (laughs) You're gonna stop so you can look this up. Because there's a kid named Simon, and you want to say it wrong. So you gotta find, oh, that's an Al Pacino movie. Is it about Al Pacino being a little boy on a desert island? Because I bet the answer is no. That is Al Pacino. Look at that. I pulled that one out. Great. I'm so glad. Sim, what? Oh, it's Simone, but they call her Simone. See, she's all pixelated. Yes, There's Al Pacino. There is Al Pacino. Is it about a giant pixel woman who falls in love with Al Pacino? Because that's what this 
movie poster looks oh, like. Oh, she's not giant. She's normal size. Otherwise, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really bad movie. Fine. So got <laughs> Sam, Eric, Roger, Simon, and a bunch of other boys, too. Simone. But, like, literally, who cares? Anyway, Jack tries to take charge and get everyone working on a rescue plan, but Ralph is like, Shut up! I blew the shell! So I'm like the megaphone man, and that means I'm in charge! And Jack's like, That's stupid! Having a shell doesn't make you the boss! I should be the boss, because I can sing a C-sharp! That's, that's actually a thing he says. But uh, even though they may have descended into wanton nudity, the boys have retained enough English civility to put it to a proper vote. Ralph wins, and Golding makes sure to tell us that he wins for two key reasons. One, because he's good-looking. Yeah. He's an attractive child, I guess. And two, he's- He's swole as shit. He's swole as fuck. He's holding the shell, and these idiot children are already associating it with being the boss. Oh, looks like a vagina. Thank you. Oh, it does? Because Jack is- You ever see a George O'Keefe painting? Yeah, they're all of like vaginas. Yeah, but cow skull vaginas and flower vaginas. I don't think she does. I don't think she does conch shell vagina paintings. You know what? And we have to stop the show again (laughs) to see if there are any Georgia O'Keeffe conch shell vagina paintings. (laughs) Georgia O'Keeffe conch. Oh, look at these. We got shells. We do have shells. Yeah. All right. Fine. She drew some (laughs) vagina shells. Because Jack is a sore loser, Ralph is like, well. You can keep being the boss of the choir boys. How about that? And Jack's like, all right. And he says that he and his little gang of becloaked hymn-singing fancy boys are going to be hunters and murder some animals for everyone because that sounds plausible. Ralph, Jack, and Simon go off to explore the island, and Piggy wants to come along. But Ralph knows that having Piggy hanging around and trying to be his friend is a bad look. So he makes fun of him again and tells everyone, oh, this kid's name is Piggy! Like, seriously, kid, what did you think? was gonna happen and he went squee 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 all the way home he's like sucks to your asthma piggy ralph jack and simon wander around throwing rocks and being shits and they're like this is our island we own it because we've been here for a whole 10 minutes which sounds like the english to me then they find a little pig and jack takes out a little pocket knife to kill it but... oh good it was a pocket knife <laughs> I he was take out yeah he was gonna penis. take out his dick and try to kill the pig with his dick can we not <laughs> talk about child dick for five seconds right in the eye He takes out a pocket knife to try to kill it, but he can't and has to make a bunch of excuses why to the other assuredly private school attending little, you know, weenies. But he's definitely going to murder the next animal he sees. For real, you guys. Upon their return, Ralph uses the shell to call his first meeting as leader, saying they need to be organized if they want to survive and eventually get off the island. And getting organized means making a bunch of dumb rules of procedure, like that no one can talk unless they're holding the shell that they've pretty much ascribed all authority to. These fucking sheep boys just imprinted on literally the first goddamn thing they touched upon reaching land. All hail the magic conch! Ralph insists that this island is super dope and that staying alive should be easy. One of the younger boys takes issue with this and- Issue? Issue. He takes issue. And he wants the conch, but the other boys just want to bully him until Piggy makes him cut it out and gives the boy the special shell. And he says that he and some of the other little kids have seen a monster in the jungle. A terrible beast that he saw in the dark. And the other boys are like, no, that's not real. You're a dumb baby. And even if there was a beast, and there's not, we'd super murder it dead with our choir robes. Because that's, that's about all they've got. Ralph commands the boys to light a signal fire for passing ships, and the boys comply because, yay, burning things! Except they have no way to light it. So Jack tears the glasses off Piggy's face, because of course Piggy's wearing glasses. He's a big fat nerd with asthma, and uses them like magnifying glass to start the fire. Piggy grabs a shell and starts yelling about his glasses and the, how the smoke is irritating his asthma, and the boys don't care because, yay, fire! Except then they basically set the beach on fire, because they're a bunch of fucking 12-year-old choir boys who don't know what they're doing. Although, if you do burn sand, it turns into glass. They can make them new glasses. <laughs> and then Piggy points out that in the chaos... With his fat fingers. Mm-hmm, several of the littler boys, including the one who mentioned the beast, have gone missing. Oh, you know they did. Them boys are dead. We jump ahead in time to uh, where all the boys are sunburned and just super nude now. They're all just naked as fuck. And Jack has become obsessed with hunting pigs, and he's super bad at it. While Ralph and Simon tried to build a shelter out of leaves and are super bad at it. Ralph and Jack fight and bitch about it while Piggy just lies in the dirt, like a thousand percent done with these boys and their shit. Simon, however, isn't bothered by any of this, or possibly anything ever. He just kind of wanders around and helps little kids pick fruit and admires nature and just kind of chills. Even more time passes, 
And the boys have split into two separate camps at this point with the big kids and the little kids. And the little kids are pretty much left to their own to just sort of play and eventually probably go off and die somewhere. One of the older kids, Roger, likes throwing rocks at them because, hey, there's no one here to tell him not to. Jack, meanwhile, is still desperate to commit some pig murder, and he takes the twins, Sam and Eric, who now just have the one name of Sam and Eric. Samaric. Samaric. And they paint their faces with clay and charcoal because Jack is convinced this will help them hunt pigs better. What happens instead is that Jack sees his reflection in a pool of water and sees not himself, but a crazy, long-haired, face-painted stranger. This is important because it means he doesn't have to be held accountable for his actions anymore. Because he's not Jack, he's Island Boy. While that's happening, Ralph sees a ship in the distance and flips out because if it sees the signal fire, then they're saved. Except... Piggy. No, not Piggy. Nothing to do with Piggy. Except the signal fire has gone out. Because the choir boys, who were supposed to keep it going, were out accomplishing pig murder. And Island Boy and his little gang bring the pig back and they're all just chanting, Kill the pig! Cut her throat! Spill her blood! Over and over. Don't read too much into it. Ralph is understandably pissed that they let the fire go out and blew their chance at a rescue. And while Jack does feel bad, he's also very upset that no one is properly appreciating how he killed the fuck out of this pig. He makes them rebuild the fire, and they cook the pig, and they don't give any to Piggy, even though he's the only reason they can light a fire in the first place. But whatever, he's a fat nerd with asthma, so he doesn't get food. Except Simon gives Piggy his food, because Simon is the good boy. And you can take a guess on how that's going to turn out for him. Well. (laughs) Ralph holds another meeting where, at this point, we've gone from like a tiny parliament of good English boys making rules to him screaming at them to just please stop shitting literally everywhere and just do it in the designated shitting spot. All the boys just laugh. Because poop. (laughs) Poop's funny. Even cats can do it. (laughs) Cats can do it, boys can't. The remaining little kids freak out about the beast some more, and Jack insists that he's been all over the island and has never seen a beast, and they just need to quit talking about it. Piggy tells them that getting freaked out about the beast is only going to turn them into beasts. A little late for that, Piggy. And Simon just stares out at the ocean and is like, Yeah, but like, aren't all men beasts really? You know? Whoa. Yeah, Simon's deep. And then they all just start yelling swears at each other, because it's fun, and no one's there to tell them not to swear now. And then they run off to hunt the beast, while Ralph just stands there like, What the fuck? I've got the shell. Why does the shell not make me the boss anymore? What has happened to the power of the magic conch? Ralph and Piggy wish that an adult could just magically appear and tell them what to do. Be careful what you wish for, you naked little limeys. The next chapter opens with an aerial dogfight above the island, with one of the pilots ejecting and parachuting down. Oh, also, he's super dead. Sam and Eric are taking care of the signal fire when they see this floating, limmy thing slowly descending towards them and naturally freak the fuck out, running and screaming that they've seen the beast. So Ralph, Jack, and the gang run off and try to hunt it, and Piggy's like, who's gonna watch the little kids while, while this happens, you know, if the beast comes? And Jack says... Sucks to the little ones, because human empathy is for bitches and wimps. They don't find the beast, but they do see from their spot on the mountain that they let the signal fire go out. Again. Guys. Like, like, come on. Ralph is just really tired of being dirty and naked and gross all the time, but he can see the other little boys seem to have adjusted to their new lives as filth-ridden nudists just fine, which worries him because they won't be as motivated to get off the island. Then Simon just sort of appears next to him and just goes, You'll get back all right. Just like that. You know, like a weirdly spiritual and omniscient tween does. Then a wild boar appears, and for a few frenzied moments, they jab at it with their shitty little handmade spears, and even Ralph gets in on it and is like, Whoa, hunting is actually fun! Except the boar gets away. The boys are so fucking giddy with the thought of almost killing a thing that they reenact the whole event, making one of the other boys be the boar, except they get way too into it. And by the end, the kid playing the boar is fucking terrified and thinks he's going to die. The other boys back off and are like, yeah, whatever, man, we, we were just playing. Quit being a baby. But Golding lets us know that all the boys know on the inside that this is bullshit. And they all really want to do it again and experience those feelings. And is this getting really Freudian for anyone else? It's, uh, it's getting a little uncomfortable. Also, Jack says they could just use one of the little kids in place of the pig. You know, as a joke. Ha <laughs> ha. No Mr. Brightside lyrics for this one. 
My stomach is sick. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, the boys stumble upon the corpse of the downed pilot, but at this point, it's night, and it's so dark that they can't really tell what they're looking at. So They can't look at it. It's killing them. Yeah, and taking control. So they flip shit and run away screaming. They tell the other boys back on the beach about seeing the beast, and Jack takes the conk from Ralph and says that Ralph shouldn't be the chief because he's friends with the fat nerd kid, hasn't yet murdered an animal, and got scared when he saw the beast, as though Jack was not also freaking out. None of the boys want to actually follow through with impeaching Ralph, though, so Jack wanders off to pout about it, saying he's going to make his own tribe, and it's going to be so great, you guys, not going to be like this shitty tribe, it's going to be wicked, and you'll all see. Destiny is calling him. Uh, so no one knows what to do, so... They go swimming through sick lullabies. <laughs> yes, choking on their alibis. Well, actually, no, later they'll, they'll, they'll choke on some alibis, so you might want to save that one Turning up. saints into <laughs> the seas. Actually, hang on to that line, too! <laughs> I might be about to make some connections here. Wait, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> hey, you know who their label is? <laughs> Island. <laughs> So no, one knows, yeah, so, so no one knows what to do. Simon, of all people, is like, why don't we just go... Call a cab. Stop. <laughs> why don't we just go up the mountain and confront the beast? It's not like we're actually doing anything else, but no one wants to do that. Let's have a smoke. Well, they light a new signal fire on the beach. So. Taking a drive. <laughs> Ralph and Piggy, um, at this point, notice that most of the older boys have vanished, along with Simon. They're going to bed. No, actually. The other boys, not including Simon, went off and joined Jack. They decide, in their infinite tween wisdom, that if they kill a pig and leave part of it for the beast as an offering, then we'll leave them alone. They actually find a mother pig nursing a bunch of little baby pigs, and things get all weirdly psychosexually violent again as the boys just murder the ever-loving shit out of the pigs. Like, it's messy and bad, and the pig is screaming the whole time, and it's just it's just really awful. Once it's done, there's this moment of like, well, what do we do now? The answer is rub pig's blood on their faces and jam its head on a stick and stab the other end of the stick into the ground as an offering for the beast. Obviously. That's usually how you make an offering. Uh. <laughs> just like Vlad the Impaler did. Here, guys, here's some heads. <laughs> here's some heads just for you. They run off with their pig bits and Simon emerges from the hiding place he was where he watched the boys commit their pig sins. Then shit gets weird. Simon stares at the pig head as flies buzz around it. It's the Lord of the Flies. He- Yay. And then reality starts to kind of blur a bit. And the pig head tells Simon that it's all just a bad business. And that Simon is just an ignorant and silly boy. And there's no one here to help him. Just me, the pig head says. Yes, the pig head says. Like, there's dialogue tags on it. Uh, there's just me. And I'm the beast. He goes on to say that he's inside Simon, too. And that the boys were stupid to think that the beast was something that they could hunt and kill. The Lord of the Flies, who almost seems to be grinning, tells Simon that we are going to have fun on this island. And then Simon drops to the ground, having fainted again. Now let me just say that I absolutely did not appreciate how fucking cool and weird and fucked up and awesome that scene was. As a teenager utterly disinterested in a book about an island full of dipshit murder boys, but fuck man, that's just a solid scene. It's so creepy and good and you don't know what the hell is going on. I didn't appreciate enough that. I think people don't necessarily appreciate it enough. It's subtlety going out the window. (laughs) That's what's going on. (laughs) Okay, how often are any of the fucking books we talk about on this show ever subtle at all? If you're gonna, if you're not gonna be subtle, commit. Go full talking pighead. <laughs> so while that's happening, Jack and the painted pig blood boys come screeching down to camp with the pig parts and take over the signal fire to roast it. Everyone pretty much deserts Ralph in favor of not starving to death, and even Ralph is starting to lose his grip. Like, guys, no, we we have to keep the fire going because. Um, How did it end up like this? <laughs> Until uh, Piggy's like, because we want to get rescued and get off this fucking island. And Ralph's like, right, that. Meanwhile, Simon wakes up from his communion with the pig head in the dark with a bloody nose. He decides, fuck it, and climbs the mountain and then finds the body of the pilot and is like, this is gross as hell, but this is definitely just a dude. And he heads back down to tell the other boys that there isn't really a beast. I'm sure this will go well. Back on the beach, it's like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys crossed with fucking Werner Werner Herzog. 
as they all dance around the fire, screaming about pig blood and reenacting the pig murder over and over because they're just really fixated on it for some reason. Seems kind of weird, huh? Yeah. Could have just made bacon. <laughs> Jack declares himself the new chief. Lightning and thunder crash, and they're all getting whipped up into a prepubescent frenzy when Simon runs up yelling about a dead guy on the mountain. The boys, in the midst of whatever the fuck is going on with them, instead think that Simon is the beast coming to kill them, and they all, including the good kids, Ralph and Piggy, jump on him in what Golding charmingly describes as a tearing of teeth and claws. Nice. It starts raining, and the kids back away, and Simon is lying in a pool of blood in the sand, and they realize they've all just committed baby's first homicide. R.I.P. Simon! You were the only kid who didn't seem to view morality as an artificial concept enforced by society, but something humans are just supposed to have. Also, you talk to pigheads. And uh, as they're watching, the tide sort of comes in and grabs his body and carries it away. This saint-like boy is returned to the sea. <laughs> Turning saints into the sea. And it was jealousy that did it. Well, no, it was actually weird mob mentality terror. Yeah, jealousy <laughs> of him being unique. That's not it at all. I think it was. Ralph freaks out that they straight murdered a kid, but Piggy insists it was an accident, and Sam and Eric say they didn't even really participate like everyone else was doing, and by the time they're all done talking, they've decided that they were never even at the party, and even if they were, they definitely left before things got weird. Yeah, I'm sure Simon really appreciates as you are choking on your alibis, but it's just the price I pay. Destiny is calling me. That, that's singing. That's for you, Storm. Storm's a fan of ours. He bullies me on Twitter and says I shouldn't sing on the show. So Why? Because they're mean. They're just a mean person. Meanwhile, Chief Jack has taken up shelter in a cave where he beats a little kid for no reason, tells the other boys that it's okay that they killed Simon because it was definitely the beast in disguise and that they need to steal the fire from the beach. On said beach, Ralph and Piggy are just barely clinging to reality when they hear something moving around in the dark and freak out and hide in their shelter, except something destroys their shelter and beats the hell out of them before disappearing. Gee, I wonder what it could have been. Babadook. No. The answer is never going to be the Babadook. What was the best horror movie of 2015? Well... Oh, that's never the answer. The Babadook had a stupid ending. So do a lot of movies and books. Yeah, well. It was Jack and Roger and their crazy little minions. Well, the kid of the twins, they stole Piggy's glasses so they could light more fires. And also this kid is like basically blind now. Despite this, he and Ralph resolve to travel to Island Boy's murder cave to demand they give the glasses back. And they even bring the conch shell with them like it still actually means something. It doesn't go great. Jack laughs at them and Roger... Remember the guy who liked throwing rocks at little kids? He throws rocks at them. Big surprise there. Ralph and Jack fight, and Jack orders that the twins be tied up because he just likes making the boys do shitty things to each other. Piggy grabs the conch and tells everyone to cut it the fuck out and shut up. And they actually do. Piggy takes advantage of the moment to tell the boys to quit with this whole, like, painting yourselves with pig's blood and going all crazy murder-naked business and act like not even proper English gentlemen, but people with any kind of common fucking sense and work on getting rescued. And then Roger murders Piggy with a really big rock. And it knocks Piggy off the cliff they're on, pulverizes the conch shell, and sends Piggy's body hurtling down onto the rocks below. R.I.P. Piggy, you had asthma. Jack screams that because the shell is destroyed, rules don't exist anymore, which, like, the shell had become a pretty flimsy symbol of rules existing in the first place, so, you know, sure. Then him and the other boys try to stab Ralph, and he runs away. Ralph spends the remainder of the book running for his fucking life as Jack, Roger, and the other boys try to hunt him to death. Even the twins are doing it now, even though they don't want to, they're just too scared of Jack and Roger not to. And Ralph is running on just pure animal instinct, trying to avoid being killed. He doesn't realize it at first, but he's back by the beach. And there's a boat there! A Navy boat! With a naval officer on it! And he looks at this, uh, or the naval officer looks at this gang of crazed, dirty, malnourished, and naked boys, and is just like, Oi, were you little nippers playing a game of some kind? Because, yeah, that's what this looks like. He jokingly asks if anyone's been killed, and Ralph's like, 
yeah, but just two kids. And the officer's like, um, what? And something happens now that there's an adult present. And you you had kind of mentioned it when you talked about Golding and the talking to the little boys at the play. Jack isn't the terrifying painted monster anymore. He's just a naked little boy who suddenly feels really embarrassed and ashamed. And just like that, this feverish murder frenzy that had all the kids in its grip is just gone completely. And they can't even seem to remember where it came from in the first place. And then they start crying. Because really, they're just a bunch of shitty, scared little British boys who killed a couple of other scared little British boys. And the officer is like, good God, pull yourselves together. This is just unseemly. You're British boys. You should have put up a better show than this. You should have kept a stiff upper lip and done it proper like the Coral Island. And obviously, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he really does mention the Coral Island by name. And then the book ends with the boys' rescue, as Simon predicted, and a reminder from Golding in the form of the officer that civilization is also kind of bullshit and stupid too, and anyway, he's part of a war also, so really, who is he to judge a bunch of kids for descending into Apocalypse Now-style madness? Oh, you forget one of the key things that he has with him that the kids notice that gives him Oh, right, the, the big fucking gun. Well, there's two guns. There's the guy behind him with a gun, but the officer himself has a revolver. Yes. The biggest conch shell of all. The end. And that's Lord of the Flies. So even if you don't like it, you have to appreciate the fact that if you stranded a gaggle of tween boys on an island, they wouldn't fucking thrive. They wouldn't have perfect adventures and a jolly good time. They'd build crappy shelters, bully each other, shit, laugh at the fact that they shit, and eventually become feral and descend into a vaguely Oedipal bloodlust power trip, as kids are wont to do. I've seen <laughs> Camp Nowhere, I disagree. Well, there was an adult at Camp Nowhere. Shit, what's his name? Doc Brown. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd was there keeping an eye on everybody. I don't know, he's much of an adult. He was the conch shell they needed. Yeah. He had <laughs> Christopher no Lloyd had been on this island. Things would have worked out differently. In terms of adaptations, there is, of course, the Simpsons episode that we brought up, because there's a Simpsons episode for fucking everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's been adapted for the stage. There was a BBC radio play in 2013. In terms of films, there was a 1963 adaptation that was very well received and is maintained as just sort of the best adaptation. And I think I saw it as like an impressionable child person because I have a very vivid recollection of a of a pighead on a stick and high-pitched voices saying, sucks to your ass, ma, but that's all I remember. So, you know, who knows? The only thing I want to say about it is something that I only just learned reading about it for this episode, and that's that the boys in the movie had never acted in anything before and pretty much hadn't read the book. So they were just sort of just shooting boys, being boys. And a, a visiting journalist watched um, as one of the boys who was waiting around on the set to do his scene pushed live lizards into the moving blades of a fan to amuse himself. And if that doesn't prove Golding's point, then I don't know what does. There was another movie in 1990, uh, this version of the boys are American and also military school cadets, and there's like a live adult with them on the island, it, it really strays from like the, the original plot. People say it's not good, I wouldn't know, I don't care. Late last year, it was announced that they're making another adaptation, but this time with all girls. Mm. Because equality, except it's being helmed by dudes, obviously. The novel is a deconstruction of toxic masculinity and how it's sort of so deep-rooted and ingrained that it makes these little boys make a hell nightmare out of Paradise Island, and I just don't think it would play out the same way with girls. Which is not to say that girls aren't capable of being horrible little tank goblins to each other, but it just doesn't manifest itself in the same way as boys, mostly because of how society treats boy aggression versus girl aggression, etc., etc. But the fact is... If you threw a bunch of tween girls on an island, it's not going to play out the same way. So if they really try to do just like a straight up note for note remake, but with girls, then it's probably not going to be very good. Also, some people online made some very good jokes that it would just become the island from Wonder Woman, where ladies just rode horses and learned weaponry and presumably had a bunch of big gay lady sex. So there's that too. So, RJ. What's up? Lord of the Flies. Yep. Good or bad? Or bright side. I mean, I think it's okay. I think people on both ends are wrong, partially. I do like that it makes fun of novels like Coral Island and Robson Crusoe. That the idea of white man's going to show up, usually a white British man, and we're going to rock it. It's going to be awesome. And probably it wouldn't work out quite that way. 
However, I'm not with this whole Hobbesian idea of man is like built in evil at heart. It's the Adam and Eve story. They The kids wind up on an untouched island where they show up. They call it the scar. Right? Like they, it's a, yes. it, was a, it was Eden. And then man shows up and man ruins everything. <laughs> See, but then we got Simon. Simon's kind of the wrench in that works because he's not a horrible little fuck monster. He's civilized, but he's not like Ralph and Piggy, but he's also not like the the fucking evil boys. So I feel like Simon kind of complicates reading it through that lens of of just that he's saying that all men are just horrible fucking creatures. So, because then if that's the case, what is Simon? But he gets killed. Yeah. (laughs) But he's dead is what he is. Mincemeat. Fair enough. Fodder. I I do think that Goldine was constrained by maybe his own inner demons kind of broadcasted and put it on everybody else. And so I think it's a little in between where I, I do get why he's attacking all these other stories, but then he takes it a little too far and he's not very subtle about it. There's a pig's head that talks. <laughs> that tells you. There's a pig's head that talks that, that basically is the devil. <laughs> so Megan. Yeah, RJ. Lord of the dance. That's my Lord of the Dance music. Yeah. Good or bad. I mean, I guess I probably fall in the middle there with you because I hated it when I had to read it. I'm like, why am I supposed to care about a bunch of dumb boys? They they just end up nude and murdery. And as an adult going through it again for this, I kind of got a newfound appreciation for it. And yes, the pig's head scene is literally the opposite of subtlety, but it's so cool because it's just so fucking weird and it just really stands out from the the rest of the book in that way the imagery in the book is really strong and interesting and screwed up so that part of it is cool and having now also read the coral island and understanding what it is that golding is is you know making fun of that golding saying you know bullshit to like you were saying helps a lot and i think more students would get into it if they had that context for it if the teacher would say like this is the stuff that he's making fun of. Here's his version. At least kind of make it easier to get his intent than like, William Golding really just wanted to write a book about murder boys on an island. Which also still might have partly been the case. Because like you said, he had some dark bits. Uh, some dark shit going on there in his little little Golding head. But yeah, in the end, it is still a book about a bunch of little British prissy boys descending into just murder times. Which in reality, they would probably just Cry a lot, push each other, fail to build a shelter, get dysentery, and die. But that probably wouldn't be as interesting to read about. That's my take. And that'll about do it for this episode of Owner Lick Less. If you want to help us keep coming out of our cage and doing just fine, you can leave us a review or subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You can please, for the love of God, join our goddamn Facebook group. That's basically our desert island. The few people in our Facebook group are probably going to go feral and kill each other. I'm looking at you, Scott. We are a part of the Brain Trust Brothers Network, and so you can find us at braintrustbrothers.com slash, oh, that's braintrustbrews.com slash onolitclass, or at onolitclass.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to check out other awesome shows on the Brain Trust Brothers Network, including Field of Screams, the Brain Trust Brothers podcast, and also Potter and History X, and, you know, more, more to come. This episode's pod pal is Graveyard Tales with Adam and Matt. Spooky stories that will both tickle your funny bone and shiver your spine. As opposed to, I don't know, your, your timbers. I'm sorry my cat is in this one, guys. Just pretend that it's not my cat, but a spooky apparition like the kind that they would talk about on Graveyard Tales. So uh, go check them out and tell them you're looking for old magic hands. They'll know. Good evening, everybody, or morning or afternoon or whatever. My name is Adam. And I'm Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like stories of ghosts, hauntings, the paranormal, preternatural, and the downright weird, and you enjoy a few laughs as well, then you should probably check us out. Find us anywhere you get your podcast. Come join our Facebook group at Graveyard Tales Podcast or on Twitter at 
G-R-V-E-Y. Just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. We look forward to seeing you in the graveyard. See you soon. Our next episode will be on March 1st. Thank you, Best Day, as always, for making our intro music that we use. Again, people keep coming. People keep coming up to me. I still like they physically walk up to me and are like, hey, people talk to me on the internet. How much they like the song and dig it. So just a reminder that you can listen to them on Spotify under Best Day or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash best dash day. And if you have a podcast, you could commission him to make sweet music sounds for yours as well. That's about it for Ona Liklas. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Ta. Putting it on there, it's angled downwards. Why is it angled downwards? I don't know. Um, Despite you. Your whole existence is to spite me. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.